Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs think that the value of their company is driven by the industry they're in, right? So they look at publicly traded companies and say, well, because XYZ publicly traded company is trading for whatever, 12 times earnings, we should be trading for something similar. And maybe you go to an industry event and you find out that companies in your industry are trading for a certain multiple. However, what we find when we look at the data, and now we've gone through more than 20,000 business owners, we find something very different plays out. We've seen companies in the same industry trade at half the industry multiple because they've got some serious flaws in the business. And we've also seen companies that trade at 2 and 3x the industry multiple because they've structured it differently, approached the selling of their company and the valuing of their company through the lens of these eight factors that acquirers care about. And so to look at your business through the same lens, um, I want you to take 15 minutes and complete the value builder questionnaire. You're going to get a score and the score relates to how valuable your business would be in the eyes of an acquired. It's going to help you think through your business in a different way. Go to valuebuildersystem.com. You know, one of the big decisions we all have to make at some point is whether we want to own a big chunk of a small company or a smaller slice of a bigger company. And my next guest, Aaron Houghton, chose the latter camp. He wanted to grow a significant business and ultimately had to give up a little bit of equity all along the way. What you're going to hear is his journey in selling little slices of his equity along the way. First $250,000 in return for a little slice of equity. Then he raised another 250K and ultimately he raised a round of $65 million of equity financing before going to sell his company for $180 million. The journey and how he financed his growth I think is revealing. What I want you to pay special attention to is how he's choosing to finance his new company. This is a company he started four years ago, and what he's doing is focusing exclusively on unit economics. In particular, he's trying to get the lifetime value of a subscriber to be at least three times that which it costs to acquire that subscriber. That's the LTV to CAC ratio. And that's really going to be the defining you know, point where he can go out and raise money when he's able to reach that three to one clip. So uh, here to tell you the rest of his story of eye contact, selling it for $180 million and now his new business is Aaron Houghton. Aaron, welcome to Build a Cell Radio. Hi, uh, thanks, John. Tell me a little bit about eye contact. Where did this all start? Yeah, so the eye contact business um, became uh, really a, a digital marketing suite of tools. It started in the email marketing space, and the the impetus of, of the idea came many many years ago um, when I was in, actually a high school student in uh, Western North Carolina in the U.S. And uh, there's a very tourism driven. Um, uh, business community there. So bed and breakfasts, inns, cottages, restaurants, and and they thrive during three months of the fall when, when the leaves change color. And this is where I went to high school and kind of grew up in this environment of tourists coming through town and, and really making the annual budgets uh, kind of like the holiday retail season, but it happened in October every year for these businesses. And they had a, a very distinct challenge, which was how to communicate with their customers that typically drove up from the Southeast of the United States, six to eight hour drive. 
And then after they spent a week uh, in, in Western North Carolina um, being tourists, they went back home. And so these businesses had the challenge of how to stay in touch of a cust- in front of a customer base that basically didn't need them for 10 and a half months out of the year, but then distinctly needed exactly what they offered during that month or two when, when they traveled uh, into the Southeast, uh, north, more, more north than the U.S. So the question um, was, how could, they, how could they communicate with them? They'd solved this problem for the most part by... Uh, mailing physical printed mailers. So this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, and they were literally just going to a print shop or in their office printing out uh, 3,500 brochures or update emails and then going to the postal service and mailing all of them off to their customers all all throughout the Southeast. And so what did you guys give them? Yep. So our solution was to move this to the digital world. Um, and we didn't originally think of it that way. We, th- we actually had one of our um, consulting customers, I was running a web design, web development business at the time, asked us very specifically for um, how can I, I, th- I think the way she posed the need that she had was, um, how can I email my website to people? <laughs> and so what, what she was really asking for at the time, what it ended up becoming was HTML emails. It was the first time emails could have layout markup in images in them and, and look like a brochure or look like the website that this woman had for her um, cottages that she rented. So we moved them from the physical world to the digital world for the most part. So some of your competitors, like we would, I'd be familiar with like a company called Constant Contact or AWeber or MailChimp. Would that have been the kind of yeah, competitive set? That, that's exactly right. So from uh, 2002 until about 2010, um, the market in terms of size was essentially um, constant contact, vertical response on the West Coast in San Francisco, and us. Uh, MailChimp was a later entrant into the market. Um, AWeber, AWeber was actually early, but we surpassed them in terms of customer size pretty quickly. And Aaron, who's the we? Are you found of the business? I understand there were partners yep. involved. Yeah, that's right. So I had one co-founder, a gentleman by the name of Ryan Alice, and he joined me um, officially for the start of the eye contact business. So I mentioned just briefly my consulting business before, which was my web design business. That's where this tool was actually built. And as it started to have some momentum and a handful of customers, I mean, literally like 12 customers, I think only six of them were actually paying. We were giving it away free to a couple people. Uh, Ryan joined me and helped me really commercialize that. So we spun that technology out of my consulting business into the eye contact entity and co-founded that business together. So Ryan and I were the two co-founders and worked together from, from beginning to the end in the eye contact business. And then talk a little bit about the growth, uh, in particular, the capital structure. You, you brought on some investors along the way. We're talking offline about uh, going to capital from Washington, D.C. Maybe talk a little bit yep. about how that worked. Yeah, absolutely. So we're in the triangle area of North Carolina, kind of central part of the state. And you know, one of the great things about this part of the state is it's relatively cost effective to create a software company in comparison to things like Silicon Valley. One of the downsides of the, this area is that there's not a lot of big VC firms sitting around here just doling out money to anybody anybody that walks by. Um, and so we, we looked outside of our region and uh, we did find our very early investors here. So we raised a $250,000 convertible debt note. So essentially debt that we needed to pay back to investors. And they had the option to convert into equity later, uh, 12 months later. So we started that locally. And at the end of 12 months, they gave, they doubled that and gave us another 250k. But the first real kind of big equity dollars that we started looking for to expand, expand the business and, and really grow our, our customer volume um, online was was in the DC market. So we looked at folks in Tennessee, uh, in the Chattanooga area. There's some investment groups, Atlanta, obviously to the south of us, um, and then DC just to the north. So our early investors came out of the uh, Reston area. Or our next investors that did a five and a half million round as, in our Series A. Um, 
so we brought and ended up bringing several rounds of capital into the business because we were growing very, very quickly. Um, and we had a very, very high profit margin in the business. Um, email software is not very expensive to, to deliver. Um, the infrastructure costs are very, very low. So we had um, very interested investors uh, in a variety of different capacities. We had equity investors. We had new debt investors later on that gave us debt at very good prices. We had kind of hybrid investors that were both debt and had equity components to them as well. So we raised capital in a lot of different creative ways. Ultimately, over the over about the six years in which we had outside capital in the business, we raised a total of $65 million. Um, the le- most of that being our Series B, which was in September of 2010, which was a $40 million round from a private equity firm in, in the uh, Baltimore area. For someone who doesn't really underst- spend a lot of time thinking about these things, can you explain in layman's terms what a convertible debt note is? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of a newer instrument in the investment space. Our new is in kind of the last 10 years. And, you know, really one of the big advantages to why startups do this versus just taking traditional equity investment from outside investors is really the paperwork's quite simple. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, I always love simplicity because my business is already complex. And, you know, I'm dealing with this fire hose of the problems that happen every day in my business. And, um, you know, Adding outside investors adds more complexity. There's more people I need to keep happy, keep updated, communicate well with. It just adds kind of another you know huge role to my job. And so if I can keep the arrangement with them and the legal paperwork and the legal costs of just getting everything arranged and, and set up uh, simpler, then it's it's an advantage. So the way it, it actually works is that they give you the money now and it's, it's essentially just debt. So that's why the paperwork's easier. You're doing kind of debt paperwork. They're just giving you a loan. And they have the option to, at some future point in time, and um, you can also add other conditions or they can add conditions. For instance, if your revenue were to grow to this amount, then you could essentially force them to convert into equity, which means you no longer owe them the money back, but you do excuse me, have to immediately give them um, some percentage of your company. So actual shares are issued, they become the owners of them, and they now officially become owners of your business. Another thing it simplifies in the short term is if they haven't converted in yet, um, they aren't equity holders in your business. And so a debt holder typically has a little bit less rights. They might be able to observe things and get information and stay updated and have rights to do that. But they might not have the ability to actually control your company outside of the capacity of making you pay them the money back. But they couldn't essentially influence or certainly control executive decisions. You might want to add a new product line, price the product differently, do something completely uh, radical in your business. And they, for the most part, would kind of have to come along for the ride. So there's a little bit of a, a, a push and take there. But it's um, it's a good format for a lot of early stage startups or any type of company that wants to raise capital. And talk about how you valued the business with this first two fifty k and a convertible debt note. Um, you take the money. Did you agree up front with the investor what the value would be if if and when they exercised the option to convert? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So the answer to that is yes and no. So yes, in terms of a formula was built, but no, in terms of we didn't know what the output of that formula would be until we got there because it was based on revenue. So what we agreed on is that in you know in the fast growing software world, because of the high margins and because of the high percentage growth. And when I say fast growing, I'm saying let's say you're growing by you know three x, you'll triple your revenue this year, something like that. That would put you in the fast growing category. That put us in the fast growing category. Um, you know, they're, you're lo- essentially looking at a multiple of revenue typically as, a, as opposed to a multiple of profit. Um, and so regardless of, of how the business is, is valued, you can, you know, in our business, it happened to be a multiple of revenue and other businesses it would probably be a multiple of profit. But what we agreed to is we agreed on some number multiple of revenue 12 months from now is what we would be valued at. 
Um, now they still had the option, right? So there, there's still some some leniency in this, which is that all right, let's say it, it's uh, four times revenue, and we grow revenue to a million bucks in 12 months. So the company's now valued at four million bucks. So that's the agreed upon valuation, but they still have the option not to convert. So they could say, you know what, that's great, you guys grew, that's awesome, but you know what, four bu- four million bucks is still a little bit too rich. So you know, we're we're going to call the debt, and you need to pay us back. So they still have a bit of negotiating leverage, and investors do at the end of this. They might come back and say, you know, we, we're we're willing to do this at a three million valuation, and we'll convert in. And depending on your cash situation, in our case, if we couldn't have paid them back the two hundred fifty k. It would have been, you know, we would have been in the weak side of, of that negotiation and might have had to have given a little bit. So, you know, although you agree upon it in advance, typically you don't see um, binding agreements around what would have to happen at the end of those 12 months. Usually the investor still has the option. Got it. And do you remember what the multiple of revenue was all the way back then in that first 250K? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 4.5. And so then the next obvious question I would assume you'd ask, John, is how did you get to 4.5? So, um, you know, that that was, it's certainly a back and forth. It's a negotiation. Um, it was, you know, that was not the number we came into this with. We were not sophisticated in terms of knowing really how to raise outside capital at the time. So we were learning all of this just, you know, flying by the seat of our pants and asking friends who'd raise capital. What it ended up coming down to was data points from a couple different people. Um, one of them was just our attorneys. As we started to hire attorneys to think about this, um, they had done other software deals. And so they said, okay, these three companies kind of look like you guys in terms of growth rate profit and they're in software and that sort of thing. Here's roughly what their deals were. So they can't give up kind of the specific confidential details, but they could get us close. And then we actually used some um, some analysts. I forget exactly what firms they were with, but you know, we, were, we, we had a little bit of money back then, but I think we had to pay someone like $250 an hour to get on the phone call with an analyst in New York that could tell us, you know, the last, the comparables, the last 10 deals that have happened out there, um, kind of private information that other people didn't have that could say, you know, they were kind of in this range. So we had some, some sort of benchmarks to sort of bookends to, to aim between when we started talking with investors. And that was very, very helpful because we didn't know whether, you know, 0.5 or 20 was the right multiple when we started. And they helped kind of cram us in that, all right, kind of like one and a half to eight were what was out there. And so we just kind of aimed for the middle and came to agreement with our investors. And then you had three or four other rounds and other convertible debt note the next year and then the Series A. How did the valuation change? Uh, obviously, the revenue changed, but did it roughly stay in that four and a half times top line revenue number or did it did it change with each series, uh, which with each round of investment? Yeah, it, it roughly stayed pretty consistent. So if there's a bit of advice you know, I could give to entrepreneurs that are starting to raise outside capital, you kind of never get better deal terms than the first deal you take because every future investor who gives you more money wants to slightly one-up the previous investors in terms of their deal terms. So they may come in and invest more money at a higher valuation, but they'd look at that multiple and say, oh, your first guy's got four and a half, so you know, can we get 4.4? So there's always a little bit of kind of one-upmanship that happens there. Um, and you typically never, unless something just explosive happens in your business where you grew by 3x this year and you grew by 20x next year, you can argue, okay, maybe our multiple should go up a bit because we're now the, the hottest thing out there. But outside of some sort of amazing event like that happening, which I which I rarely see and certainly didn't happen in my business, um, you know, you, you typically, it, it crams down a little bit. The other big trend that we saw is that over time in any industry, and when you look at it at a high level, and I look at it now 10 years later, it makes a lot of sense. Um, which is that you know every industry has a cycle, right? And in technology, it could be five to fifteen years, whereas maybe fifty years ago, in, in businesses that were more traditional, it, maybe the cycle is fifty years. But over that 
cycle of a, of a software company, especially in, in the last 15 years, um, you know, software just becomes commoditized. Competitors continue to enter the market. Um, margin maybe starts to come down. Uh, you certainly pay more to acquire customers on the front side to get new customers as competition comes in. Um, you actually start to see those multiples across the industry drop. And for the most part, we have seen that in, in email marketing where we were seeing that between uh, 2010 and 2015. Um, that trend's actually kind of, oddly enough, has, has changed and email kind of hit a trough and I think it's coming back up again. But that's one thing to watch. If you're raising capital now, um, it's quite possible your business will just be in a less hot sector, especially if you're a software company, six years from now. So although your revenue may be higher, therefore your valuation is higher, that multiple on revenue is probably going to start ticking its way down over time. And for you and Ryan, were you both sort of aligned around this idea of building to sell? I mean, did you entertain the idea of maybe just making it a lifestyle business or, or were you always committed to, to building to sell? Yeah, I, I think our vision from day one was to, to build something really meaningful that could have a, a very large impact. And so, you know, we, we thought it was extremely cool. We had over a million users. We had over 80,000 paying businesses at one point. I think almost got to the 90,000 mark before we sold. Um, and about 40% of those were outside of the U.S. Sorry, it's about 20% of those were outside of the U.S. Um, so it was just a cool reach. You know, we had customers all over the world. We felt like we were really impacting um, a lot of small businesses. And one of the things that, you know, that I didn't mention in that, in that moving people from the physical world to the digital world was that um, they were saving tons of money. You might spend three grand to print out all those newsletters and mail them with you know, U.S. Postal Service postage all around the United States. Um, they were doing that for 40 bucks a month with, with high contact digitally. So we really felt like we were democratizing a set of, of marketing tools that, that influenced a lot of people. That said, you know, that, that was where we, that's where we got that kind of vision and, and passion from and, and got that back from the business as we scaled. We always thought it was a business that would be right for someone else eventually that could take it to the next level and that could give us bigger reach um, that could, you know, make it part of a suite of tools that, that otherwise connected and that maybe we weren't ex exactly committed to building because it was out of our scope. So that and when we added investors, these, out, these equity investors, um, especially when we raised the $40 million round, there's just an expectation, right? You've got to get them their money back. And that's hard to do out of, uh, out of profits, uh, in a reasonable period of time. They want to get out in five to 10 years. We could have probably paid them back out of profits in 25 years. Um, and so it just, it just kind of, uh, sets your destiny when you do that. So I think we were, we were always all aligned on that plan and it was set pretty early on. You know, people talk, entrepreneurs talk about the importance of having, you know, Jim Collins calls it a BHAG, but some, some, you know, like a major 25 year goal in your case, it was really to, to democratize this digital yeah. marketing. I mean, the skeptic in me says, okay, yeah, I get that sells well to employees and that probably sells well in the media, but was that really how you felt? I mean, in your gut, were you, did you think you were really having a positive impact on the world or was that, you know, marketing sort of, uh, messaging that, that, that was convenient for the, t at the time? Yeah. So, you know, um, we didn't actually use that in our marketing messaging very much. So I'll tell you, our marketing messaging was, was very specific in, in many other ways. So, you know, in term, it, it, that's how we thought about it internally. So I, I think to your point, you know, yeah, is that just kind of, you know, outside fluff? And I'm a huge skeptic when I, when I hear everyone, any other company, uh, especially when they start talking about how everyone's culture is always the best or, you know, this culture is the best, that culture is the best. Well, now everybody has the best culture. So it's starting to, uh, you know, my old copywriting teacher in high school said all bold is no bold. So if you don't, you don't look different than anything else on the page, you know, you're still not different. 
Um, so, you know, I, I certainly think as leaders of the business, it was a, it was our passion and it was easy to communicate that passion to our employees. It was also really backed up in the economics of the business. So it wasn't just something that we went out there and touted internally to kind of build the team and, and have pep rallies. Um, our business, you can actually see it in the economics of our business. So in 2008 and 2009 in, in the U.S. and almost entirely globally, it was a very large economic recession. And you would imagine that startups like, like ours that had – so we weren't profitable ever. Uh, we were profitable the last two months before we sold. So of our 10-year history – um, you know, 12 times nine, but yeah, exactly. So about 115 months of, of, of losses in a row. Right. And we, we did that by raising this outside capital so that we could grow quickly. Um, you know, we had, we, we were not profitable. So you would think that in 08 and 09, we we're actually spending the most, you're spending almost $2 million a month in digital advertising to promote our own business. Most of that going to Google AdWords and double click their, their display advertising, um, technologies. Um, you know, we were we were at an at-risk company. Um, a lot of the big uh, venture capital firms were going out there saying to their portfolio companies, right, it's time to buckle down. It's going to be hard for the next two years. Those were actually our two best years. And the reason why was because that same cash crunch that was hitting us and everybody else was hitting our target market. And we didn't really even realize this until after the fact, but it was forcing the last small businesses out of doing this old print and mail method that if they just hadn't had the time to switch, they were doing it in 08 and 09 because the, the economy was hitting them and it, they just couldn't afford it anymore. So our solution actually proved to be the thing they turned to in need to save money. And they got in return um, additional tracking, um, the ability to maybe send a, a newsletter twice a month if they wanted to instead of twice a year. So we were really proud of, of what we offered, and we saw that in the uh, in the actual numbers. Those were our best years as the economy was dropping. Our growth was was absolutely accelerating. It was a really really fun time. Isn't that wild? And so I guess you got the business up north of around forty million. Is that is yeah? We were top line revenue. Yeah, I think we broke forty nine points something or other in the, uh, in 2011, which was our last full fiscal year before we sold. Yep. And then what was the trigger that made you want to actually sell completely and fully get out? Yeah. So, you know, we, um, we really tried to sell the business all the time. <laughs> um, so Ryan and I were first time founders and, you know, the amount of money that people were offering us the, to, to purchase the business, even three years in, was enough money that we were willing to say yes to it. So we tried to sell the business very early on. And what started pushing it out is as we would raise more, as we would decide not to do a deal. Tip, actually, typically, the buyer would decide not to do the deal. Almost every case, uh, they, they backed out and kind of broke up with us in, in the process that we'd started to, to sell the business. We had some very large brand names from the West Coast. Um, one of them make two attempts to buy us over a 12-month period of time, both times backing out for different reasons. Once they went to buy one of our competitors, failed in that deal, came back, and then decided not to buy us the second time around because of some technology scaling challenges they said that we had. So there was always a reason, um, and we were always trying to sell the business. The amount that we had to sell it for was what changed from time to time. So in the early years, if someone wanted to give us a couple million bucks, we're a couple guys in our 20s who built a software company and were essentially broke outside of our assets that we had in the company, which were paper assets we couldn't do anything else with. Um, we would have been happy to take a couple million bucks, uh, absolutely. 
And so we tried the deals early on were often, you know, stock in other private companies. So we were really just kind of kicking the can down the road. We wouldn't know what value we're going to get out of that until further into the future. And we'd have less control over it as we were now part of someone else's organization and counting on their equity and and growing in value. Um, And and we eventually just got a good, a really good offer. Um, Vocus put a very, a very fast offer in front of us. So within about 30 days of us being introduced to them and learning about their interests, there was a, a letter of interest on the table and it was a very, very good offer and they were the ones who could actually get it done. So talk about that. Did you have an M&A banker sort of shopping the deal or did they come to you? How did that work? We did. Um, not in this deal. So we did for many, many years. When we went, especially when we went and went and looked to raise that Series B round, which is that $40 million equity round from a private equity firm in, in the Maryland area. They, um, When we did that round, we knew by taking that $40 million in, since to that point we'd only raised you know, 20, 25. So we're now essentially doubling what we'd taken on in the past. Um, we knew that that was going to increase the amount that we'd have to sell the company for because these guys aren't putting 40 million bucks in at some, at one valuation and then selling it for 5% more a few months later. The guys that they put this kind of money in, they need to make, you know, three to five X their money and they need to do it in a couple years. So every time we raised a big amount of outside capital like that, we knew we were pushing back the date in which we could sell the business, or we just have to get some ridiculously high offer now that could kind of hit the thresholds, um, that they wanted to get to, um, so that was that was kind of the the story of um, of of you know meeting the right uh, capital partners uh, or, or meeting the right um, the right buyers at the right time. So Vocus was the ultimate acquirer. Did did they come to you through the private equity firm? Did they make that connection? Yeah. So the the private equity firm actually made that introduction. That's a, that's a really good point. So we had used those bankers in previous rounds. Um, and before we'd raised that 40 million round, knowing that we were pushing it back, we had done a process with bankers to say, all right, we're either going to raise the 40 million bucks, um, or we're going to sell the company because we know we're going to be pushing back this date, uh, if we don't sell the company right now. And so we'd use bankers there. We'd use them in several other rounds, very similar to that. in in, in the past, this one came through our investors and they had, uh, I forget what exactly the connection was. Uh, it may have just been kind of the DC Metro being, being their connection to the CEO and the, the board members at the, at the buying company. Um, but yeah, they made the introduction. So it did not come through bankers. Um, we had, uh, a very kind of, you know, uh, hit or miss <laughs> relationship with bankers. Sometimes they, they helped us in amazing ways. Sometimes we worked really hard with them and they worked really hard and, and no outcome came from it. And I think that's kind of common in, in their business. Um, but this one did come through a little bit of a warm introduction from our existing board members. Got it. So the offer that came through uh, from Vocus, was, were you looking at it in, and comparing it to another? Did you try to gin up the price you know, by getting some other offers or were you really focused, focused exclusively on, on negotiating with Vocus itself? Yeah. So we had one other process in the works at the time with a, a very large global um, computer company that was trying to get out of, uh, well, not get out of, but just trying to kind of diverse, diversify their assets by buying into high margin software companies and get out of kind of the traditional putting parts together and selling hardware boxes. And they were a big company. And so they were moving extremely slowly. And so when we entered in negotiations with Vocus, we agreed to stop negotiations with this other large brand for a period of time so that, that Vocus could have an exclusive look at the company. 
Um, so we had had another deal essentially in the works, but it was going to probably take another three, four months to get closed and, uh, Vocus expressed their interest in moving a lot faster. So we, we were able to, to focus on them. Um, they made us a really good offer. I think one of the, one of the advantages of having that warm introduction through our board members that knew them well is our board members gave them a, a pretty immediate, um, th- these were our outside capital investors, um, that also sat on our board, they gave them a, a pretty immediate guideline for, you know, if the offer isn't at least this much, you know, let's, let's not waste all of our time because, you know, we can't sell the company for that right now because we just put a lot of capital into the business. Um, and so they, they knew that it wasn't worth anybody's time if they came in below that number. We weren't even saying we were exactly worth that number, but that was just in order to make the numbers work for our investors, it needed to be there. And so they came in at, at that number. And I understand the number was $180 million, Is that right? Including the cash you had in yeah. the business? That's right. That's what it ended up being. Yep. And, and, and how, how much movement was there from their original offer to the final you know, share purchase agreement? Yeah, um, not a lot. Uh, we came to agreement very quickly with them, which was nice because we were able to work extensively on just all the hard work it takes to sell a $50 million private company to a public company. Um, it, it's just a lot of paperwork and there's a lot of things to think about and a lot of things to get right. And that took every bit of the time that we had after coming to an agreement with them. Um, there's always the finer details. I mean, you get an offer, a letter of intent. It's essentially a term sheet, which is essentially an outline of a future contract to be delivered. So you then have to get into the the financial and legal minutia that comes inside of each of those categories. So you might agree that there is an escrow period uh, where you know X percentage of the actual sale price will be held and then paid out later. And then there's questions about, you know, how is it paid out and when exactly is it paid out and under what conditions might it not be paid out or all those sorts of things that come up. So you do get into those details. There are a million of those details. There's literally, it seems like there's an exponential amount of them every day. You solve two and 10 more pop up. Um, and that's what it cost some of our former our attempts to sell the business in the past to fail was just, you get into all those really nitty gritty, complicated details and somebody gives up because <laughs> it just doesn't seem worth it. But we were able to push this one through to the finish line with focus. What was the most challenging deal point to work through during that diligence period? You know, that's interesting. There was one that was just, that was, you know, almost over my head um, that had to do with the fact that a public company was buying us. And, um, you know, if you look at the, the public documents on this, part of the purchase price of our company was done in their public company stock. And a large part of it was done in, in actual cash. And so there are just some incredibly complicated details that I didn't know about. Not, you know, I'm, I'm no financial engineer um, that, that go into, you know, a deal as complex. Um, and so those ended up being the most complex ones. And I, st- I cannot even to this day um, articulate exactly what they were because I never understood them that well. We understood them well enough to, to figure out what the impacts would be on us and, and the other parties, but some very complex things that happened. And um, luckily we had attorneys that we had trusted that we'd used over our couple rounds of equity financing that we'd gotten comfortable with that were able to lead us through it. I think our, our lead attorney, who is from a firm in Atlanta, um, had done, when we first hired him, had done something like 117 venture capital financing. So the guy had a ton of experience in, in this type of thing and had sold a lot of those companies to public companies. So they had um, they had the deep expertise it took to get it done. Um, as an entrepreneur, as a person who, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a product geek. I'm a, I'm a software nerd. I have a CS degree. I taught myself to program by buying O'Reilly books off the internet when I was in high school. Um, 
So this is all very overwhelming, <laughs> looking at the details of merging companies, com- you know, company entities with millions of dollars of revenue into a public company and making it all work. It was a really fun process to watch. I learned a lot. And part of it, I didn't learn, and I'm just going to count on attorneys. Hopefully, if I ever have another big, successful business that needs to be sold again in the future. Take us back to the beginning when you and Ryan were sitting around the coffee table figuring out you know, how you take a web design shop to yep. uh, become a product company. Yeah. You know, as you look back now, if you had it to do all over again, what might you do differently? Yeah, that's a great question. So Ryan was our our CEO from almost day one. So he and I worked kind of without titles as co-founders for a couple of months. And when it became time that we were doing some of our original paperwork to just officially transfer the product out of my consulting business into the new entity we created, it became time to decide what roles we would actually have. And there's these things called, you know, official corporate titles that states and federal governments want you to actually have so they can, I guess, figure out who's neck to ring if you screw something up. So we needed to divvy up titles. Ryan uh, became our CEO and I became our CTO as we founded the business. And Ryan was the CTO through the end, or sorry, the CEO through the end. Uh, We hired a CTO a couple years in who was a really senior uh, technologist who was able to lead that organization for us. And I moved into a, a board chair role. And, you know, the chairman role is a completely, um, it's kind of an abstract role. You can be as as involved as you know an actual operator in the company and have direct reports and be responsible for portions of the company, or you can be completely uninvolved. And I think that was a, that was a challenge to me as a guy who likes to have my hands in everything, trying not to micromanage, but just still you know representing to to my team that you know I'm still highly passionate about this product. Um, I originally wrote every line of code that got us that got us fully into business, and our team then turned that into a real software company versus just the the code I'd hacked together. So that balance was was always a challenge for me. And I think if if I were to do well, I am doing it again. I'm about four years on a new a new company now. Um, I would be more clear about what my role would be going forward. Ryan being in the CEO role, it was it, that role changed from time to time as we grew. In the beginning, he was very hands-on in marketing. In later years, he was much more kind of in an investor relations role. But I think the, the chairman role was uh, was almost too big for for my you know uh, for my capacity. It pushed me a lot into leading board meetings and stuff like that that were just so far out of my comfort zone. You know, I'm a product guy. I want to be with the product team. I think I would have whittled down my role a little bit in terms of title and taken a less glamorous sounding title to be a little clear about what the hell I was supposed to be doing on a daily basis. I think that would have helped other people too. How did your personal relationship with Ryan evolve over time? It sounds like you guys were pretty good friends in the beginning. Yeah. So the interesting thing, Ryan and I have always, we worked really, really well together. And in retrospect, we complimented each other really, really well because he is very strong. He has a, is a bias toward action. He is, you know, in, in some ways kind of a, a bull in a China shop, but we needed that in the early years. He, we needed someone to just be pounding the business forward. I was the technologist. I was, I was able to deliver on the technology side. He had some skills in marketing that he had built up literally as a, as a, in, in, in an internship as a high school student, but they were very applicable to selling digital marketing tools online. He'd used some digital marketing tools as well. Um, so we worked together really, really well. Ryan and I 
personally actually share very few interests. So we worked together constantly. In the early years, we were together 20 hours a day because that's just what it took to get the, the business going. And we were drinking from the fire hose and trying to figure out how to get all the tasks done that, that came in every day. Um, in, in the later years, um, we didn't even see each other that much other than at board meetings because we were both so busy and kind of operating in different parts of the business. Um, Ryan and I have, have always been friends, um, but I think our business relationship was what really worked and really, really clicked. I think we, we both have a lot of respect for each other. I have a ton of respect for Ryan. And um, we kind of carved out parts of the, the business that um, in, in terms of kind of roles and responsibilities that I think we did a pretty good job of balancing those. I always, I, I was proud of myself in that, you know, I think if there's one thing I did right, I always stuck by that original decision to for Ryan to be the CEO. And as that role changed and kind of morphed over time, I think we did a good job of, of balancing that. And I did a good job of just, I, I think in retrospect, you could ask Ryan what he thinks of, of respecting him as the CEO. Cause it was a decision we made in the beginning. Um, and there were some times in the later years where Ryan needed to make decisions that were really tough. And the right thing for me to do was to get on board with him, um, regardless of whether I thought they were the best decision or not, because he was the leader and we all needed to be unified behind him. And so I think we, we both did a good job of that. I can't think of an example where I felt like Ryan stepped on my toes otherwise. So we, we really balanced each other well. Tell us about the new business. Yeah, so the new business came out of um, this problem that I couldn't figure out how to solve that, that came out of the kind of digital marketing tool space, which I contact was a digital marketing, a type of digital marketing tool, which was that there's all these millions of small businesses around the world. And I've just been fascinated with small businesses. Um, and, uh, you know, my businesses were all small businesses be before they started to scale. And, and in many ways still <laughs> with me as, as an unsophisticated uh, leader who didn't go to business school and have no formal business training, I've never actually had a real job. I started startups be before I started eye contact. Um, you know, I, I felt like the, the David against the Goliath out there uh, many times. And so, the problem that I identified was that all these small business people are learning the same thing every day. There's this huge learning curve as they start to use digital marketing tools, whether that's email marketing, whether that's a survey tool that they're using to collect information from their customers, whether they're trying advertising online for the first time. There's this huge learning curve and some of them get it right and some of them do it really, really well and, and most of them don't. And so what I wanted to try and solve was that kind of rework that happens uh, at, you know, to infinity across the world. There's a business that sells shoes in Russia that is enough similar to a business that sells shoes in Denver, Colorado, that are having to solve the same problems at the same time. So I wanted to try and figure out, could we connect those businesses together? Could we reduce the amount of pain they go through as they're trying to learn these, these new processes? Um, what I ended up coming up with, and, and admittedly, we're four years in and we've pivoted four times. And by pivot, I mean we have completely different business, a completely different business model, offering a relatively different product. Um, but what we just launched, uh, just over, let's see, just over a month ago on uh, February fourth, was um, a co-marketing platform. We've had the business name Boostsuite, uh, Boostsuite.com the whole time. But what Boostsuite is now is uh, essentially a group advertising tool for small businesses, and it uses that kind of. Um, um, background marketing data that sits behind every small business website um, in order to do some really, really cool targeting things in advertising that help each small business help each other. So that online seller of shoes in Russia could actually um, be introduced to that online seller of shoes in Denver, Colorado, 
on our platform. In some ways, the, the back end of our platform is a bit like a dating service. We're looking for compatibility in target audiences between different small businesses. We do this all automatically using uh, analytics and marketing data. Um, users sign up. They don't have to think about any of this stuff. It happens in the background. We connect them together. And those two businesses can now actually work together, pool customers and pool their advertising resources that makes them uh, essentially, uh, gives them essentially the power of a bigger business. In our platform, it's not just two businesses working together. Those sellers might actually pair up with 50 to 100 other small businesses and you just kind of one click and the person confirms you. It's like a, it's like friending someone on Facebook. You know, you make the request, they confirm you. You're now marketing partners in our system and you now build your pool of targeted uh, prospects that you can advertise to. And it's producing some really fantastic results for small businesses. That's so neat. So Talk a bit about the capital structure of BooSuite. How are you choosing to finance it, similar to the way you did iContact, uh, or or differently? Yes, great question. So you know, it always to me the decision always comes from you know what is the context of of that moment, and um, by having a good exit from iContact, I can now be the investor in this business. So my co-founder in this business is one of our senior marketing guys from iContact. Um, guy by the name of Daniel Smith, and he and I co-founded this business together, and have both invested cash in the business. To it's not profitable yet um, to keep the business going and and grow it. Um, and so right now it's us. Um, what I want to get to, what I look for before we bring in outside investors, and this is the same as as what we did at iContact. Um, we just didn't have any money to do it, so we used our time to do it last time. This time we're using our time plus a little bit of money is really validating the unit economics in our business model. And in, the, in a software company, and this can be generalized really to any business, I guess, but in a software company, we're looking at what is our customer acquisition cost? What does it cost us to predictably go out and get one more new paying customer on our platform? And then what is the customer lifetime value? What do they pay us over the total amount of lifetime um, that they pay for our service? We have a subscription service. So if they sign up for our $19 a month plan and they stay for two years, then that's 19 times 24 is what they pay us over their lifetime. That lifetime amount needs to be at least three to five times as much as it costs us to acquire them, uh, to find this person, to convince them that our product is valuable and to get them to sign up for the subscription. So the balance of those two things is, is what we're really looking at. With a new model we just launched in February, we've just finally broken the mold of, of that ratio. Um, and we're doing, we're doing really, really a really, really good job. So what I'm looking for now is about three to six months to prove that that wasn't just uh, an error, that um, that we actually have a track record of producing results, of acquiring it X and you know um, getting X times three to five of value over time from the customer. And once we have that validated and a little bit of track record, we'll be looking for outside investors. So I've kept very close relationships with a couple of our early investors in the eye contact business and some new investors that I'd love to work with. And I trade notes with them on about every month or two. I don't, you know, since they don't currently have capital in our business, I don't try and spend all my time updating them, but um, I try and keep them generally updated on where we are, where I want the numbers to be. And my goal from that is to kind of build a relationship with them so that when I can prove the numbers are, are where they need to be, that we'll have good capital partners then. Aaron Hogg, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Appreciate your time. Take care. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com.
John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.